Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be almost a false read like a Band-Aid you put on your arm. Touchdown! Alabama wins! Jack Nicklaus wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship. At the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters. This is the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here's Dr. Michael Ryan. Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, athletic trainers, therapists, coaches, and fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is a podcast for athletes, competitors, athletic trainers, therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, athletic trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, passionate fan, or occasional observer, we hope to bring you into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury. It is my honor and privilege to introduce today's guest who is one of the most decorated American triathletes of all time and only one of two Americans to have ever been ranked number one overall in the World International Triathlon Union, now known as the World Triathlon. He's a seven-time U.S. elite national champion with 36 podiums, 16 wins, and 88 starts on the International Triathlon Union circuit. He's a four-time Olympian and only one of two other men in the world to have qualified for every Olympic triathlon up to Rio. He was the first ever triathlete on the face of a Wheaties box and did so four times. A multi-talented phenom, he won the Jim Thorpe All-Around Award in 2005, given to athletes of outstanding accomplishment in multiple sports or events. He's in a rarefied American Olympic era, winning the United States Olympic Committee Triathlete of the Year Award in 1999, 2000, 2003, 2004, and 2005, and the U.S. Olympic Committee Sportsman of the Year Award in 2005, solidifying him in American Olympic history among greats like Michael Phelps and Michael Johnson. A 2016 induction into the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame indefinitely cemented his importance in the sport in the United States. These exhaustive accolades, among many not mentioned, are the result of his deep passion and love for the sport of triathlon, which is so obvious as to be infectious and inspirational. I am thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with such an incredible individual today. Without further ado and pleasure, professional triathlete Hunter Kemper. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dr. Ryan. I appreciate it. Man, it's it's, it's a nice uh, intro. I, I got to take you around me everywhere. Hey, I'm happy to, you know, take a second for <laughs> but thank you so much for, for taking the time today. I know you're a busy guy and doing a lot of things, but since we're really right around the corner from the Olympics, let's you know yes. start off with that. Tell us about when you were doing this, what your sort of mentality was, what were you doing in these last weeks leading up to the games? You know, the Olympics is such an exciting time and it's, it's, it's great that they're actually hosting them in Tokyo. It's been touch and go for a while. I know they were postponed with the pandemic. It's not ideal to be having the whole world come together in the middle of a pandemic. But I, I, hopefully as we're on the backside of this, it's great to see the athletes going to be able to actually compete in Tokyo in just a few weeks, which is really exciting. For me, you know, these last little bits, when you're within a month, a couple months of the games, you're kind of fine tuning things, right? You're doing a lot of high end kind of tip of the spear type 
type of training. You're not trying to gain a whole lot of extra fitness. You're just trying to sharpen your skills and, and what you have, because typically most of these athletes have gone through a, a very rigorous trials process. And, you know, to make the USA triathlon team, both men and women, uh, it's, it's very, very challenging. So you have to be on top of your game just to actually qualify to go to the games. Just like you see when athletes are qualifying for swimming and, and, and track and field, those finals at the U.S. Olympic trials are, are probably as competitive as it might be in the Olympic Games. So you got to peak for the trials and then you've got to come down a little bit, kind of ride that peak on through onto the Olympic Games in Tokyo. So, you know, I think Japan's going to do an amazing job. We're going to send a, a wonderful team over there. But I think maybe one thing that your audience might find unique with these games is that they're not going to actually have spectators yeah. in the stands. And so that's going to create a very different and unique environment. And I think a lot of these athletes are used to having support system, support structure, whether it be a sports physiologist, a medical doctors there, on-site nutritionists, sports psychologists, th their team, right? They're used to having their team of people that have helped get them there to actually be there in the stands, or at least some of those people would be there. So whether it be a coach from long ago that's helped them get to where they are uh, as a way to say thank you to, you know, to actually get to see the Olympic Games in person, that won't happen this time. So that's a unique thing that when your audience is watching the games here in a few weeks' time, that it's actually going to be uh, a different mindset for a lot of these athletes. How much of a struggle do you think it's going to add to that experience without having that support, but also just, you know, the cheerleaders on the side, giving them a little bit extra kind of motivation during the race? Totally. I think it's going to be a lot of Zoom, right? It's going to be a lot of like, you know, talking after a race and jumping online and, and discussing what they saw, trying to look at the footage on a preliminary heat or rounds that they're in on track or, or swimming type of things. But hopefully these athletes have gotten a little bit used to it, maybe through the trials process, right? Was their family able to be there in, in Omaha for the swimming trials or in Eugene for the track and field trials? Like, Hopefully through this past year, they've experienced not having that support system with them at major competitions that they've got to, to participate in. So hopefully that's led them into kind of a familiarity of not having that. But it's going to be an adjustment for sure. To give you an example, I went to four Olympic Games and I had my wife who was my girlfriend at the time, my very first one in 2000 in Sydney, Australia. She was there, but then she was there every one after that. My parents were there at every single one after that. My coaches were there at all of the games during the time that I was there. So my sports psychologist that I got to lean on mentally going through the lead up, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm experiencing, that doubts that you have creep in. It's the world's biggest stage. Yeah. And so it's a challenging environment to begin with. It just throws an extra layer. So it'll be interesting to see what they're dealing with and, and who can kind of rise above that and, and, and still win gold anyways. That's going to be a tough situation. But you talk about the team, and I did a brief rundown of, of the men's and women's team. Who are you really looking at to perform well, you think, in this event coming up in a couple of weeks? For the sport of triathlon, our women are stacked in, in my sport. So my sport, you, you swim 1.5 kilometers or roughly a mile. It's about 100 meters short of a mile. You cycle 24.8 miles or just under 25 miles. And then you run a 10K, 6.2 miles. It's swim, bike, run. It's super fast. It's really intense. It's you're redlined almost the whole time. For the women, it's about two hours approximately. For the men, it's about an hour 45, hour 48 uh, just under an hour 50 is rough estimates of what the time frame that they're actually competing. So the women, we've got Taylor Nib, a young athlete who actually benefited. And that's another thing too. How did this extra year being pushed back, who did it help during the trials process? And then who did it hurt? That's a good point. For Taylor Nib, she's so young. She went to Cornell University. She's just now kind of getting graduating. I think she took a gap year. So 
I don't know if she's quite finished or not, but she needed the extra year to even gain more fitness. I think if it was last year, I don't know if she makes the team, honestly. Really? Totally doesn't make the team. And uh, there's a girl named Summer Rappaport who made the team in 2019 before COVID broke down or in um, early 2020. So Katie Zafaris, she's a multiple world champion. She's coming into form and, and going really, really well. So our women's team is stacked. The men's team, we have a guy named Morgan Pearson, who, who's a former runner at University of Colorado, mm -hmm. CU, and super talented. So, I mean, we've got a lot of athletes. And another thing was that there's a lot of new events that are coming into the Olympic Games. And Tokyo and Japan as a country are allowed to add new sports. And so they brought back baseball and softball, which is really wow, cool yeah. because it's big in Japan and big in Asia. Yeah. So they brought that back. Baseball and softball have not been the Olympic Games since, I believe, 2008. So it's been a 12-year hiatus. Yeah. In Rio, I mean, one of the new sports in Rio was golf, yeah. right? That was a new sport. Surfing is going to be a new sport in, in Japan and wow. Tokyo. Rock climbing, sport climbing is going to be a new sport. And skateboarding are all going to be awesome. new sports, kind of crazy and different. So those will be new sports, just like mine was triathlon was a new sport in 2000 in Sydney. The new events that they're adding are a lot of these mixed relays. So men and women both competing on the same team. So we'll have that in triathlon as well. Oh, really? It'll be, a, yep, it'll be a, a woman will compete first, do a mini triathlon, like super short, 300 meter swim, oh, wow. maybe a, a 7K bike or an 8K bike, and then a one and a half K run or a 2K run. So it'll take about 18 or 20 minutes to do. Wow. And then they'll tag to the guy, he'll go back to another woman, she'll go, and then it finish with the guy. So four athletes. Two men, two women, start with the woman and then finish with the guy on the fourth leg. And this will be action-packed race. It'll take about an hour and 20 minutes to do. And we have a real shot at winning a medal in this type of event. So That's awesome. it's going to be... It's going to be really cool to see, uh, just to give you some history in my sport, women have only won in Rio 2016, Gwen Jorgensen won gold, and then she wow. moved to running. She moved to track and field this time around, but she's our only gold medalist. I was the main guy for the men for the past, all these Olympic games, and my best finish was seventh in Beijing. So there's a lot to look forward to. I think there's a lot of potential on the men's side with this kid out of Boulder and um, just learning the sport. And then on the women's side, we're always stacked. So. Yeah, that's awesome. exciting. I, I didn't realize that the relay was going to be part of that. I mean, this distance alone is, as you mentioned, you're redlined the whole time. So it's super fast. You know, the level at which your athletes are not only swimming and moving through this process, the transitions alone are seconds. I mean, it's, it's amazing, let alone having it be a shorter and now a relay. That's going to be really fascinating to watch. Really fascinating to watch. So when they tag, you'll be seeing people run on the pontoon, like off and like doing these like flying dives into the open water. It'll be it, super fast. And some of the countries are picking their athletes strictly on who's a better relay athlete because the relay athlete only has to go 18 minutes or 20 minutes. So it's almost more of like choosing your half miler or miler yeah. versus your 10K or marathon person, more of your endurance oriented athlete. So the, the US, I would predict that we're definitely medal favorites. Whether we win gold, I don't know, but it would be shocking to me if we don't walk away with the medal in this mixed relay, which yeah. will be dynamic. It'll be on the middle weekend of the game. So again, the Olympic Games covers 16 days. It's a fortnight, a little over two weeks. And so it'll be the middle weekend awesome. and the men's and women's races will be before that the first week. So that's great. And you mentioned that this was uh, something that I was kind of curious about too, is that the host cities get to choose or add events. So when you go back to 2000 in Sydney, was it Australia that was actually the one that brought triathlon this distance to the Olympic level? Is that what really how it happened? 
Absolutely. I think the host country, once they get decided, I think they're allowed to choose a couple of sports or add something. And when something gets added, there's a lot of times other sports get taken away, like baseball and softball got taken away after 2008. So Australia was really good in triathlon. I mean, it's a sport that they do very, very well. They're an island country, right? So I mean, swimming and cycling and running, it's just inherent in who they what they do really, really well. So they're the ones that brought it on. They knew they were going to do well, and they actually placed it on the opening day. So, like, it was opening ceremonies always on a Friday night or a Friday's opening ceremonies. The women's triathlon was day one. Saturday morning was the very first day because they were hoping to win a gold medal. The very first sport to actually have a medal in hand on that first morning was hoping to be triathlon right there in Sydney Harbor, yeah. right? Viking downtown Sydney. They got a silver. They didn't win gold, but still pretty exciting. And then the men's race, we were in the next day. We were on a Sunday. So we were just a day and a half after opening ceremony. So I actually didn't even get to walk in opening ceremony. Oh, because, really? Yeah. That process, it's all about staging and it, you're on your feet so long. It'd be like yeah. going to the mall or you're just hanging out, walking on your feet, like for yeah. eight hours. It's not an ideal prep yeah. for the biggest race of your life. So our women and men both didn't walk. And you'll see a lot of swimmers don't walk uh, because swimming is the opening week in the sport in the Olympic games. It's always the first week track and field is the second week. So sometimes the track athletes might not even be in country yet. If they are, they're, they're definitely walking because they're a week away. But the swimming athletes, if you compete that first morning, there's a good chance you're not going to walk an opening ceremony. So, yes, the, the countries do get to choose. They get to have a say in, in what sports they want added. And we were just lucky enough that triathlon was uh, added in 2000. And it worked out for me because I had just graduated college in 1998. So I came out to Colorado Springs, Olympic City, USA, free housing, free food at the Olympic Training Center and never looked back. So that was very fortunate timing on your part because if you back up, when you were a kid, triathlon was your first, I won't say first love because that's an assumption, but it seems like you knew that at, at a young age, this was something you were good at and you really enjoyed. Talk a little bit about growing up and how you came into triathlon. Yeah, it's a great thing. And this is for parents too. I think the number one thing I would say to parents is that you want your kids to love what they're doing. They need to choose it ultimately, especially a sport like triathlon because triathlon's not naturally fun. Your heart rate's like 170 as a kid. Like you feel like you're going to throw up half the time. It's not like basketball or, or swinging a baseball bat. That's fun hitting a soccer ball around. That's fun. But triathlon, uh, I did all sports. I played tennis. I did soccer. I did baseball and, and, and basketball. I did all different sports. And I, and I was a big believer of playing all different sports. But I started swimming when I was six and then did my very first triathlon when I was 10. I won my very first race when I was 10 years old. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and uh, I won my very first race. It took me 17 minutes to do. It was super short, but I just absolutely fell in love with it. And when you're good at things and when you naturally win, you see your name in the paper. I thought it was the coolest thing that I saw Hunter Kemper in the newspaper. I was just like, ah, oh. I didn't realize that there was only two other kids in my age group. Like it was, I was the best <laughs> of three. You know, so it wasn't like I was setting the world on fire. Yeah. And then I went on and, and won the uh, the national championships, which was a few months later that summer in Tampa, Florida. It happened to be in my home state. I was the best of nine. So I felt like I was getting better. Yeah. And so I fell in love with it because I was naturally good at it. And when you're good at something, you tend to kind of get through those rough times of feeling like it's, it's uncomfortable, you know? Yeah. And so I would just tell parents, what, whatever your kid is doing, making sure it's not coming from you, making sure that you're not dictating. You can introduce and you can do all that, but you can't be the ultimate driver of what the kid wants to do, right? I mean, I could set all my kids up and I have five kids of my own now. And, and some are old enough. I have a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old, a nine-year-old, and they're old enough to do sports, but 
none of them have chosen triathlon for as much as I wanted that to be the case. That hasn't been a sport that they're maybe most comfortable in. They want to do, maybe they don't want to follow dad or whatever it is, but that's okay. I'm totally okay with that. I want them to follow something that what's good for them, what they want to do. And whether it's my wife's sport of volleyball, she was an all American at, at Michigan state in volleyball, whether that's what they want to do, that would be great. I have really, really tall kids. My wife's six, two. So at a, at a certain point being that tall and my 14 year old six, four. So like, I mean, when you're that tall triathlon is not probably it's a negative, right? Whereas maybe in basketball, it's a positive kind of thing. So I just hope parents around the country, I mean, we get so specialized so early and these kids, when they grow up and you know, this more than anyone, you see kids coming through with arm injuries in baseball, if it's elbow, because they're just playing it year round all the time. And I think by the time they get to college, they're done or the time they get to early in the pros. If you have that every season, something different, I know at some point you do have to specialize and I get that, but I think early on, it's good to definitely be broad. And, and I think coaches now are looking towards that. I think universities and baseball or football or basketball coaches are looking at athletes that are well-rounded. Thank you for making the points that we espouse here a lot. That idea of not specializing is such a huge thing. We hear about it all the time, not only, like you said, here in our offices, but at national conferences where we talk about, and you know, guys like Dr. James Andrews, I mean, he was the first one on this podcast. Yeah. He said this for yes. decades of, hey, listen, you know, if you're going to be a great athlete, be a great athlete. You don't need to focus yes. on one sport like baseball at age 10. There's this aspect of building a whole plethora of different skills as you go through and you'll be a better athlete towards the end. And we have studies that show that, but you're right. I mean, it's hard even now, even with all that information, we still have plenty of patients who come in with elbow injuries because they're throwing and they're playing year-round baseball. So well, I'm glad you made that point because it's one of those where even with triathlon, the, the benefit is that you're doing three different things. So yes. even if you're doing it consistently, yes. there's a little bit of variability there, which is great on the aspect of triathlon. 100%. There's variability in it. And therefore, I mean, most of our injuries come from overuse on the running side. It's not as much swimming and it's not as much biking, but we don't do one sport enough to really get injured in particular in that sport. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Dr. James Andrews is exactly right. He's the foremost and the Olympian himself, like the premier in his field. And, and so I think he says it's exactly right. I mean, the specialization, it can be a good thing for certain kids, but I think it's, it's parents. It's that fear of missing out. Yeah. It's that fear of, I see my neighbors and I see my friends and I see everyone else around the country. Oh, I don't live in Arizona. Ooh, those kids have year round weather. They're playing year round sports. I know it. I know I'm getting behind. I know, you know, and so like, oh, I had to do, I want to do best for my kid. I, I mean, and it comes from a place of, of care and compassion for and love for your kids. But I think ultimately when you specialize so early in anything, you get a benefit from playing other sports in different seasons. And at some point you do have to specialize, but that can come in, Ninth grade, 10th grade, later on. And I'm telling you right now, for all those parents, coaches are looking at that. If I was a running coach and I'm a university running coach, I would specifically be asking the question, how many miles do you do right now? How much training do you do? If it's 35 miles, if it's 40 miles or under in high school, I'm good with that. And I'm thinking that there's room for growth. If you're telling me you're already running 60 miles a week or 70 miles a week, you know, seven miles plus, I know that, wow, that's a lot. So I know kind of where I'm at. I, I don't know how much more I can get from that. So yeah. for me, I think, you know, puts you guys in business. It does. It does. It's a bit yeah. of a catch 22, right? I mean, yeah. not with the kids. You don't want to no, see that I, with kids. It, but with, it, we would tough. all prefer not to be, but it's one of those where it's part of culture and it, it would be a yep. huge cultural shift to do that. And, you know, we're going to yep. continue to recommend the things like you just 100%. mentioned in terms of not specializing and making sure you give yourself some rest, but people yes. are going to continue to ignore it. So we're here anyway. But I think it's interesting because when you then decided that not only were you a triathlete growing up, you won five national championships and then you eventually decided to go 
to Wake Forest, but they didn't have triathlon at the college level at that time, did they? Or was it maybe they club? Didn't. Yeah, it is exactly right. It was a club university sport. So it was not a scholarship sport. So when I was going to school, I would love to have gotten, I would have gotten a full ride anywhere I wanted to if, if the sport of triathlon was actually played at a university level on a scholarship level. It wasn't. So my only two options was to swim or to run one of the two sports. They don't do cycling in college at yeah. university. So I, I was burned out of swimming. That wasn't my thing anymore. I mean, I was been doing it since I was six. I didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to run. And I actually had a very much long-term focus, which I wanted to become professional in the sport of triathlon outside the Olympic games, because it wasn't announced to me that triathlon was going to be in the Olympics until I was in college. So while I was looking at universities, I wanted to go to the best running school because running was my weakest of the three disciplines. And I actually applied to all these different running schools, and I wasn't very good as a runner by itself. I wasn't a great runner. And so I get the mail one day. My dad gets the mail. I come home, and he's got this huge grin on his face. And I'm like, oh, what's the deal with my dad? He's a kind of a big jokester anyways. And he hands me the mail, and he hands me the phone. And he's like, hey, you got a phone call to make. And so I looked in the mail. I'm like, what's he talking about? And Wake Forest sent me the women's media guide. They thought <laughs> I was a girl runner, which – it's not good. Like no. Hunter, I guess could go either way. Yeah. He's like, Oh no, you've got to call the men's track program and let them know that you're not a girl, you're a guy. <laughs> and so I was like, Oh, this is not good. So I call up the men's program and I was like, listen, I'm a man. And uh, for the men's cross country team, can I get a scholarship? And he's like, yeah, no, that won't be happening. But thanks for calling and letting us know. We're sorry about that. Mix up. Oh man. Uh, and I was like, uh, can I walk on? And they're like, sure, absolutely. So I walked on. I was paying full boat or not me. My parents were. Yeah. And uh, it was difficult to go from a place of being the best in the country at, at a certain sport to walking on. But for me, I knew that Wake Forest was a top 15 school in cross country and track. They were really, really good. Good. And they're in the Atlantic Coast Conference in the ACC. It's a solid Division One university. Um, and so I went there. And by the time I was a senior, I was all conference, all ACC in the 10,000 meters. And I really just felt like that ability to kind of start from the bottom and work my way up because I was surrounded around great athletes and great runners just made me better. And then when I left college, that running was my best of the three disciplines. And then I left finding out that triathlon was a sport that I was going to do in the Olympic Games. And that's what I wanted to do. And so it kind of set my career path. But I was very long term focused, knowing that I want to be a professional athlete. I want to be a professional triathlete. I needed to work on my weakness. And I would suggest that to everyone. I think it's a great learning lesson, a life lesson is that. As kids, as youth, as even adults, we don't want to focus on things that we're not good at. We tend to always want to gravitate towards things that we always know that we're great at, and which is good. I knew I was great in the sport of triathlon itself, but I knew that within that sport, there were th certain things that I had to work on and identify. And of the three disciplines, running was my weakness. So I had to address it head on. I did it when I was 17 and 18 years old. I addressed it and took my lumps. And by the time I was 24 and 28 years old, I was winning the best race, the biggest races around the world, number one in the world. And because I put those four years in early to realize I've got to get better at the thing that I'm not very good at. And so I'm a big believer in play to your strengths, right? Strengths finder in that book and just knowing like, what are you most naturally good at? Do that. But within your strength, what do you need to improve to make that strength that what you're good at even better? Say it's baseball or basketball. Is it ball handling? Okay, so we know you want to be a professional basketball player. Great. Okay, so I tell my son all the time, I said, okay, you're a great shooter. That's that's awesome. But maybe we got to work on our ball handling more. Maybe we got to work on our footwork more, right? Because there's all these different aspects within the sport that you have to perfect to be a to be what you want to do. Like if you want to be a professional athlete, you have to be good at everything yeah. within that sport. You just can't be lazy on defense. That's not going to go over well. 
right? Or if you're a baseball, maybe you're a great pitcher, but early on, you're not a great hitting. Well, you got to develop that skill. You got to develop the fielding and all those things. So it'd be the same thing that you do, Dr. Ryan, right? The same thing for you. What is it within your field that you're like, okay, I'm I'm really good at this, but I need to get better with, with the subset within what I'm actually good at. Yeah, absolutely. Some of it's little nuanced things as far as certain parts of the surgery or certain parts of the clinical examination that you try to remind yes. yourself of and hone in. Because I think it does make yes. a difference as it distinguishes your ability to, to either make a diagnosis or to execute a surgery better. And so looking at those things and always rewinding and trying to find out, hey, okay, this one went well, but it could have gone a little bit better here, here, and here. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the things you kind of have to focus on. 100%. And, and you could be the best surgeon in the world, but maybe your bedside manner with the actual consultation side isn't great. And you're like, man, everyone's telling me this guy's the best one in the world. This guy's unbelievable, but yet he's he's a little bit cold. I want a little bit more just compassion and yeah. empathy maybe for some people. So yeah. whatever it is, it's cool to see that you guys, even at your highest level, are always looking back and saying, what can I do to get better at what it is that I'm actually trying to do, which is great. I think it's, it's like anywhere else. The best ones always are. And my mentors have shown me that that's kind of the only way that you continue to prove throughout your career. So I, yeah. I was pretty impressed with the the longevity and the forethought that, the foresight that you had really as a high school kid, really to realize, number one, to look at your weaknesses and figure out what you had to focus on to get better and really to become that next level. I think it's a really good point. But two, also realizing that you stepped back and you didn't have an ego, right? When you said, hey, can I walk on? Like I'm looking at a longer term thing as opposed to, well, you didn't give me the scholarship I wanted, so I'm going to go yes. somewhere else. I mean, you really realized yes. you put everything in the right category. So I think it's an important point for people to realize as well. Moving forward, again, you, you talk about this idea of maintaining goals. I read somewhere that the, if you graduated, you really knew that, again, you were already planning to go become a professional triathlete. At that point, you probably realized that the, the Olympics were now in play. Tell us a story about you telling your dad that you wanted to become a pro triathlete because I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, you know, I mean, my, my, my parents have been super supportive of me growing up and, and a kid playing sports. That's just what I love. That's what I was good at. I had one older sister. Sports wasn't really her thing. And so I was kind of an only child when it came to sports. And so for me, I, I went to my dad after college when I graduated in 1998 and said, hey, I want to move up to Colorado Springs, Colorado. It's Olympic City, USA. And they have the Olympic Training Center out there. And, and at the time, I, I was able to get free housing and free food. And so I, I wasn't making a whole lot of money. I didn't have a whole lot of sponsors. The Nikes and, the, and these different things weren't there yet. But I knew I could figure out how to reduce my expenses. So I just had to pay for my way to get to races, my travel and all that kind of stuff and odds and ends. So I went out there and I just told my dad, I said, hey, listen, here's the deal. Like, give me a couple years. Give me like two or three, four years. Just give me a few years to try to get to the Olympic Games in 2000 in Sydney. Give me that. And maybe like a year afterwards, if I don't get there, to let me see some progress. And will you be with me? Will you have my back? And by my back, I mean like if I got to send you a visa bill in the mail, like a credit card bill to say, hey, this is what I, I owe and I can't pay this right now. Will you be there? And he's like, I got you. I got you. I want to be on this Olympic journey with you. I'm totally right there with you. But let's let's maybe run out of contract or let's like say it's there's a time stamp to this. This isn't like, you know, Hunter calling me in, in 2005, having made no Olympic Games. I'm still trying to survive after seven years and I'm not actually furthering my professional triathlon career. He wasn't in it for that. And I think what it was, it was awesome to know that he was there for me. But it was also a bit of tough love to say, listen. It's not a never ending process, right? I mean, you just can't keep on coming back to me. And I think parents will be there for their kids in that time of wanting to follow them and see a dream become a reality. It's so key, right? You don't want to crush anyone's dream at any age, but at some point you've got to be that person to say, hey, maybe this isn't it. Maybe triathlon isn't your thing because the results aren't showing, right? 
right? The same thing on your field, right? I mean, if you're practicing and you're doing surgery and you're not quite getting it, right? Or schooling's not your thing and just the learning process is not your thing. It's a lot. What you have to go through is a ton of work to get to where you are. It just doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time and a lot of study to get there. And so the same thing with triathlon. And so I, I just wanted him to walk alongside and share in the journey. And he was great. I think, honestly, I think in the end, I sent him Maybe I sent him one credit card statement that was pretty light. And after that, I paid him back in full plus interest. So we're all caught up. All square now. That's yeah, awesome. we're all square. We're all square. Well, but you it's know, fun to have a family like that. Um, well, and you got to imagine from his perspective, seeing you really fulfill your dreams and goals has got to be amazing. And one of my questions is when you got to Sydney and you finally realized, hey, man, I'm here. I, I made my goals. What was that emotional experience like? like? That had been overwhelming. I don't cry at movies. I really cry at like sports. And so like, I literally see commercials of the Olympics and I start like tearing up. And my wife's like, what's wrong with you? So, you know, I'm like, oh, it's sports. These guys have worked so hard. I can't even imagine what that was like. Give us a little insight as to like your first time you walk into this Olympic stage. You know, it's the ultimate reality TV is really what it is. I don't think people realize the longevity that someone puts into a career to get to the Olympic Games. It's not even just the four years. A gymnast, okay? So when you see Simone Biles going to be performing in Tokyo, and when you see Katie Ledecky, they've been doing this, both of those two athletes have been doing it at such, such a young age, you know, five years old, maybe four, five, six years old, they've been doing it and trying to get better and better and better and, and work on their craft and perfect it. It takes so much time and energy and effort that you go through these deep valleys and your, you know, parents are there with you and, and friendships and, and coaches are there with you that aren't getting paid anything. A lot of these coaches are volunteer. There's the high level ones like women's soccer team is doing pretty well or the men's soccer team or the baseball team guys. Maybe they're doing pretty well. But the Olympics really is made up of a whole bunch of sports like wrestling and, and taekwondo and archery and shooting and, you know, these sports that aren't mainstream, right? Synchronized swimming and water polo. Where you're not maybe going and making a career out of it. So you need help along the way. And so when you finally get there and know that you've worked so hard for one particular goal to actually try to be one, make the team. But then when you make it the goal of trying to win a medal, when everyone else in the world is trying to win that exact same medal, it's not easy. It's so, so difficult. So I think when you see athletes get emotional on the podium and when they're crying and when they hear their flag being raised and their national anthem being sung, when they're getting emotional, I think a lot of that, that emotion, at least for me, when I get emotional on the podium, when I was at the world championships and at that level is that you're thinking about all those people that have worked so hard for you, whether it's parents or, or your whole support system that have not gotten recognized. And you're just like, man, they've given me so much. And now I'm the one that's standing here. I'm embodying what they, they've allowed me to attain. And so it's almost like that iceberg analogy, right? The tip of the iceberg, you see it on top of the water, and but the iceberg still, that, the big parts below that you don't see. And so for me, reaching the highest level in sport is something that I love to do. And that's why I, I couldn't give it up. When you chase perfection and you want to keep on doing it as an athlete, when I retired, I retired at 41, like 41 and a half years old. Like I went as long as I possibly could. Like I turned pro at 22, retired, I mean, almost 20 years. And now I know why the Derek Jeters and the Peyton Mannings and the Tom Brady's want to keep on going because one, Brady's still good at it, really, really good at it. But two, it's all you ever know. And so a lot of it's really challenging that post, you know, coming off uh, and retiring after that is it can be a really difficult thing for an athlete to come because that's all they've ever known. You yeah. know, you've gone to school and you perfected your craft in the world of surgery and doing that as athletes, we perfected our craft in, the, in our one particular sport. So we're really good at the sport of triathlon. But now a lot of my friends have gone to school and they've gone all these different things. And I'm, I'm 20 years behind that now. I don't have my MBA. I haven't come out. I've got an undergrad degree, but I don't have all those internships. I don't have all those advancements and those directorships and, you know, VPs and all. So 
you feel a bit of like, oh, it's a tough place to be. And there's a real sense of difficulty. And I, I almost compare it, not in what we do to people that serve in the military, but when they serve their 20 years and they come out, they're 40 years old, they have their whole life ahead of them. But there's all these programs, hopefully there's even more programs now than there was back then to get them redirected on a new career path. Yeah, and so it, for me, it's been a challenge. That's also been a recent topic. The Michael Phelps documentary really talking about that transition. Yes. He had a really tough yes. time. I can't, can't even imagine the depression that you go through of, of, like you said, you being on top of the world. You are one of the world's greatest athletes and you've done this your whole career and you know nothing else. And then at some point yep. it ends, you know, just the human body won't last at that level for that long. And when it does finally get to the point where you can't compete, you know, you still have a, a very large part of your life left. Do you think that there's enough set up for athletes at this time or there's development of new programs that are really helping make that transition better that today than there was 10 years ago? Absolutely. I think it's getting a lot better. And I think the USOPC, which stands for United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, the, the main governing body, the national governing body is getting a lot better. I was there. I was part of the team that helped hire our uh, athlete services, like vice president of athlete services at the USOPC. So now they're almost taking a university approach. You know how at universities, they're very good at doing this, talking about the student athlete, right? They realize that of the athletes that are going through universities and coming through universities, that what's the chance of you making it pro? Maybe 2%, 2% percent of the athletes that are all coming it's, it's really minute that you're going to make it to be at the professional level so we have to really cultivate and find out what it is what's your major what are you good at what do you love take those four years to really learn about you as a person and, and take ownership in that and i think the uni university does a great job of looking at the whole person and, and not just like what are you delivering on the playing field whereas i think in the past the USOPC has been a little bit more about medals, 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 medals and that's great we want to win medals which we do and we do very well team usa crushes it but afterwards, what does that post look like? And you talked about Michael Phelps. The mental health is, is a huge part of it. And so how are we addressing that along the way? What are we providing for athletes? Like whether it's internships or things like, what are you good at? Are you in art and music? Okay, maybe we can kind of help put you up and set you up with a mentor in this area or whatever. So maybe having this like private partnership with other corporations around the country that we can set up. Maybe it's a visa. Maybe these other companies that actually our sponsors of Team USA, that they can kind of foster and help out athletes along the way. I think they're doing a great job at it. It's come a long way. There's ways to go. And people just don't understand mental health. Yeah. Mental health is such a, a hidden thing that people don't quite get. You can't see it. You know, when someone breaks their bone, you can tell there's an x-ray. You look at it and you say, right here, this is what's going on with your body, right? Up here in the brain, Maybe you can take an MRI or whatever, but it's hard to really tell what mentally what someone's going through and what does depression look like. And it's not talked about. We need to talk about it more. We need to communicate it more about, you know, when you are depressed, what does that look like? Especially kids nowadays, they, they have so many stressors in their life in high school and middle school. And this peer pressure to live up to certain standards, to be a certain person, to make those certain grades, to get that 4.0 GPA. And it can be a lot. And it can be overwhelming and there can be bullying online or whatever it is. And, and I think, I think suicide's a real thing. I mean, it's a real, real thing. And these kids that are growing up now, it's, it's a very difficult environment that they're going through. And so I think mental health is something that the USOPC is trying to focus on. Michael Phelps, I think one of his greatest legacies is going to be, yeah, he's the greatest Olympian of all time. He's won 28 medals, 23 gold. That's amazing. But what he can do post-Olympic career in, in terms of mental health and the fact that he can voice it because someone's going to listen and say, you know what? Michael Phelps actually has struggled. Like he's the greatest of all time. There's no way he's had any problems. But when you look at that and he vocalizes that, it's great because ultimately what it's not, I mean, it's it not great what he went through, but great that he talks about it because yeah. when he talks about it, it gives other people a voice to say, Hey, 
I've actually experienced that too, but I'm not him, but is, is that okay? Well, if it's okay for him, it should be okay for me, yeah. you know? So I think it, it's something that we need to continue to talk about on the mental health side and that transition, the ultimate transition in life, right? It'd be like someone saying, you know, Dr. Ryan, you can't do surgeries anymore. You can't use your hands. You have no longer access to your hands. Then what do you do, right? There's going to be a period where you're going to be like, oh my goodness, this is what I feel like this is what I'm called to do. And now I can't do it. What do I do now? There's going to be a, a, a very difficult transition. Yeah. And that's what athletes experience all the time. Yeah. It'd be, be a huge sense of loss. Yes. Huge sense of loss. Well, I'm, yep. I'm glad to hear that, especially with the support of Michael Phelps, but also the USOP. I mean, that things are being done and, and strides are being made. You know, yes. There's a sense of loss after the career is over. But I think there's also, you know, something that I want to talk about a little more, which we kind of focus on is this idea of a sense of loss to a certain extent with an injury. And you are no stranger to injuries. I mean, obviously, doing athletics at a high level, you're going to experience some sort of injuries whether it's overuse or something else. But I think talking about a couple of them, I think the one that stands out to me is your elbow injury in 2011. That really had a, not only a, obviously an acute impact, but had a longer impact, I think, on how you swam. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about that injury, what you went through, the complications associated. Absolutely. I love to talk about it, especially someone that knows the details uh, particularly. So for me, I, I did. I had a bicycle crash in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina in the fall of 2011. I was going 35 miles an hour down this hill to no fault of my own. It was another athlete. It was a crazy situation, but I landed on my left elbow and I weight fully impacted on it. And I didn't realize how bad it was at the time. I knew it was broken. So then I go there to the medical staff in Myrtle Beach. They wrapped me up. It was heavily road rashed. So I left there on a plane medicated to get back to Denver to see my surgeon here in Denver. What we didn't realize and what I didn't realize was that, that it was an open fracture. So there was a puncture yeah. through the bone that had come through the skin, had punctured it, and then gone back. But because it was so heavily debris and road rashed up that it was hard to find. So my Denver orthopedic surgeon that I've seen before on my collarbone break, Dr. Parker up in Denver, he's like, hey, we got to have surgery right now. And I was totally caught off guard. I was like, whoa, you're going to fix my elbow like right now? Like, no way. He's like, no, no, no. We have to have like a washout surgery because this thing has been opened up. There's debris that's gotten in there. We've got to clean you out to make sure there's not going to be any infection. And so he does that. I had surgery within like 24 hours, but just a clean out surgery. Just going to go in there and clean the debris out. He does that. And then we develop a plan of who I want to go see in terms of medical care to actually fix the elbow. And what I didn't realize is that there's all these specialties within what you guys do, right? Like, like what's your specialty, Dr. Ryan? A lot of hip, right? So I, I want the elbow. I want this guy. I want yeah. from the fingertips to the elbow. And there's people out there that just do that. So I asked Dr. Parker, I said, how many, he's like, this looks pretty complicated. It was totally shattered. My elbow, the, the joint there was just, it was all just blown up. And he's like, I do maybe like a, a few a month kind of thing, half a, you know, a dozen a year kind of thing, you know, whatever. And so I'm like, okay. So then I got a second opinion to a guy, again, like you guys up in Vail Valley Medical Stemming Clinic up there that specialize. Dr. Viola does like a couple hundred a year. And I was like, okay, you're my, <laughs> you're my guy. Yeah. So I went and saw him. It was a tricky surgery. He got in there, he got it done. But then about two months later, I started developing like a fever, like right before Christmas, holidays of 2011. And at my elbow, I was really working hard because as you know, joints, you've got to get these joints moving very, very quickly because yeah. you only have a certain amount of time to get this fully functioning to where you can get the full extension, right? He, they were always telling me like my flexion part, like bending it and, and raising it to my mouth, like get, you know, eating a cheeseburger. That wasn't going to be the problem. It was the full extension. Yeah. And I wanted a career left. I was still trying to qualify for my fourth Olympic games. So I was working so hard. And then I got, a, I got this fever. It was like 102. My elbow stopped moving. And, and so I called him up. I got a, a test done here in Colorado Springs. 
they looked at my blood results and they basically said, hey, just get up here as fast as you can. So I went up there. I had staph infection. They cleaned me out, three separate clean outs, washouts to get in there like over the course of four days. It oh, was yeah. crazy. And then I had a pick line put yeah. in my opposite arm. I'm, I'm sharing details that you already know, but it was an antibiotic that you could only drip it at a certain rate because it was so powerful that it would actually burn up your insides. It took 90 minutes for me to do it twice a day and for two weeks. And when you're on the Christmas holiday trying to qualify for your fourth games and you're like, how did I get to this? Like to get to on my bed with an IV pick line put into my opposite arm in there, it's not a great situation. And so I really struggled with it for a while. And I got to a point where you come out of that spring, February, March, as I was leading up into London, going for the London games in 2012, I just tried to seize on every day, making every day count. And I was out of the woods. I, I was healthy. The infection had cleared my body and it was great. And then when I made the Olympic team for my fourth Olympic Games on Mother's Day weekend in San Diego, it provides that much more clarity of why you want to do it. When you go through a valley that deep, that's the reason why I'm quite crying emotionally to my wife, because if she knows the difficulty that I struggled with for so long and no one else really, truly realized that. And so it was great. It's great to have doctors that are able to put you back together again like that. It was un believable what he was able to do full extension i mean maybe it was like a degree or two off but it's nothing and i've seen people friends of mine that have had elbow surgeries that aren't even close so just so you guys know out there if you can get access to to great great orthopedic specialists like andrew's orthopedic center there where you guys are and, and where i went to it there's a difference there's a difference of level of someone that's doing surgeries all day long on hips like you do or whether it's elbows and hands it's a major, major difference. And so for me, I was so thankful and grateful that I got to see Dr. Viola and he got to provide that kind of surgery and, and basically put the parts back together again. Yeah, that group is fantastic there. Dr. Viola, is, as you mentioned, is a specialist in the hand and upper extremity. And he's definitely the guy you want to go to among you know others across the country. But you know we're very 100%. fortunate here because I think part of it too is volume, like you said. So you talked to a guy who said, oh, I've done a handful of these. And, yep. and that's the, the benefit of where we're at here too in Birmingham is that we see so much is that you know the guys who are 10 and 20 years older than I have have seen thousands and thousands and thousands of surgeries that you know the yes. experience in that alone is is such a good reinforcement to what we do on a daily basis. And, you know, really you get to that point, you really, there's nothing you haven't seen and, and you're still learning, but it's one of those where you know how to manage these situations, whether they're simple or in your situation, very, very complex. And the hope is that with every one of those, whether it's simple or complex is to have a result like yours, where despite you having to kind of go through uh, some difficulties yes. to the, the end result is really what you're looking for. Whether it's athletes who are at the highest level or uh, grandma and grandpa who just want to pick up a coffee cup to put that on the top shelf. That's the goal is to get you back to as, as good, as perfect as we possibly can. So it's our pleasure to be able to do that with you guys and especially the high level athletes too. It's just a lot of fun to see the motivation and be a part of that. Well, it's pretty cool to know that athletes are coming to you because you're so good at what you do. You ultimately reach the pinnacle in your profession to know that the highest level athlete wants to go there to Birmingham. Maybe they're from LA or they're from Northern California. That happens all the time, right? I mean, people are flying in, especially to coming into you guys to say, hey, I've got other access to doctors, but I want to go see you and your team because of the volume that you see yeah. and the credibility that you have. Because there's a lot of times you'll be in surgery and you don't want to be caught off guard, right? As an athlete, we want to go with the best. We want to make sure that, hey, we got to do the research to say, where do we want to go and find out who is the best? And you can tell by the, the jerseys on your screen and the people that come through there. I mean, Dr. Andrews is world renowned and, yeah. and, and it's for a reason, right? It's not just because his name's easy to say or whatever it is. Yeah. It's because he's good at what he does. And so I can't imagine having mentors like that to go in there and talk to and be in surgery with, to be like, 
if you're caught off guard, because maybe you're younger, right? Yeah. And you're just still learning. You're like, wow, this is something I haven't seen. And being with the, uh, another surgeon in there and being like, okay, yep, this is something on you, but here's what we're going to do and have a plan of attack and, and going at it. It's man. Yeah. It's very much sport driven. And that's why yeah. I think surgeons and athletes and high level, they get one another. It, you, you get the level of expertise that you have to put into a product or a skill that you're trying to do. And there's an appreciation factor and yeah. you get it. Like you said, for me, I'm very fortunate to have you surrounded by mentors who on a daily basis, whether it's Dr. Lyle Kane, who's the team doc for Alabama, or Dr. Jeff Dugas, who takes care of Troy in the WWE, or Ben Emblem, who's also been a mentor. And we have our specialist, Dr. Norman Waldrop is a foot and ankle specialist, and Kathleen McKeon. They're all just fantastic. And the whole group in general are just incredible here. And so it's been been very fortunate to have those people to lean on because, you know, we all have people that have developed us in terms of who we are. And for us, it's very fortunate. We're excited to be able to take care of athletes like yourself. In terms of other injuries, I think a huge part of this is that, like you said, we can fix things, but the mental side of it, you mentioned these valleys. Was there a point throughout that recovery or any other injury that you were really doubting your ability to come back at all? Did you ever get to that point or was it just you're kind of struggling with the day-to-day rehab? Tell us a little bit about the emotional side of that. The emotional side can be very, very challenging on injuries, uh, especially overuse injuries and chronic things. I haven't dealt with a ton of that, but my biggest one was an SI joint injury, right? That's hip related, that's sacroiliac joint. And what I didn't realize is that structurally, all bodies are not equal. Your femurs from one side to the next might not be the same. And so when you're young, you can get through that and that your body just overcompensates and your brain, your body just, it's a fine tune machine. So it's, it's doing it, but it's almost like, like tread on a tire, right? After a while, they might need to be rotated or you might need to look at things. And so I was dealing with this SI joint issue that I was having extreme like lower back pain, not in my spine, but off to like my hip kind of side. And it was almost like it would formulate in the, in like in my butt and my glute, it would kind of change and kind of move around. And it was very frustrating from 2007 to 2008, kind of right before Beijing, I was dealing with just trying to figure out what that was until I learned that there was a structural femur length difference that I needed like a lift in my shoe, like an entire sole lift in my right foot to boost it, to overcompensate. Because at some point my body said, you know, at 32 years old, it said, no, we're done. You have an issue here. And when I figured that out, it was, it was so much better. So I put that in my cycling shoe and my running shoe or whatever. So there can be a, a great deal of, of stuff put in emotionally to it. So that was one SI joint injury with the pelvis. I also went through a, a sports hernia, which hockey players get a lot. Athletes get soccer players get a lot. But the only way to fix a sports hernia is to have like a mesh pad ultimately put in, right? And kind of go in there. It's a pretty easy procedure to do, but it takes a little while in recovery side to, to do it. And so I, I found out the pain that I was having in the lead up to 2008 in the trials. And so my surgeon up in Denver, again, he was like, hey, uh, I can help you out, but it's going to require surgery to ultimately to fix this thing. And I go, I don't have time for that. What's the other option? And they're like, well, we can give you a local steroid injection. You can fill out forms in, in order to do that. And that's legal to calm down the inflammation, but that's only going to be temporary. And you can only have so many of those. And so it's, it's a challenge. And I went into Beijing knowing that I wasn't in pain on race day, but it wasn't ideal preparation going into race day. So Athletes are constantly dealing with injuries, especially as they get older. So I would tell younger kids and younger athletes is that be preventative, do preventative maintenance on your body, right? Instead of rehab, do prehab. And so maybe for that baseball player, it's doing band work all the time, right? Just constantly doing band work. So that, that beforehand and that after is so important. You think the main part is just throwing the baseball or, or doing the actual practice. It's that lead up to the practice to get your body in the right frame and, and position and that post and what you can do afterwards. And it's so important. Young athletes don't get it. They think they're invincible. They don't understand that concept of, of prehab, but they will. And so if you can, as a younger kid, a younger athlete, if you can get that, 
it'll help you in your career. I think uh, a long lasting. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that that's something that's been a little bit more prevalent in the sort of lay experience. I mean, you look at guys like LeBron James, the amount of yes. money they, they put into recovery alone. Oh. And you know, like oh. you said, prehab 10 years ago, that was not even really a topic. And nope. as we've learned more and realizing how can you maximize longevity in your sport, it's really making sure that you recover right and prehab right. And so I think that's a great point as well. Do you think that your experience of having an acute injury, like a fracture that would end up being an open fracture, and if you compare that to your difficulty dealing with an overuse injury, such as the, the yep. SI joint or the stretch, uh, stretch fracture, which one was more difficult mentally to deal with? Overuse, for sure, because I couldn't pinpoint it. I couldn't figure out what it was. I feel like what was so good about the fracture, and honestly, is the doctors telling me, okay, whoa, here, here's where it is. Here's the elbow. This is what it's supposed to look like. This is what yours look like. This is how we're going to put it all back together again, and we're going to do it. And the confidence that you guys have and saying, I can do this. As athletes, that's what we want. We want yeah. you to go in there, and even if you do have self-doubt, don't, don't show me. Don't tell me. I mean, just maybe behind the scenes have a little bit, but yeah. say, listen, we're going to get you right. We're going to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, yeah. and that's exactly what it was. And so there was a plan of attack, and I got it. Whereas the overuse with the SI, it lasted almost 18 months where I was just like seeing a different specialist, seeing somebody else. And like the, the, the pain would change. I'd walk into the office and I would and get examined and get x-rays and MRIs. And I, I couldn't identify it for him. I felt like, no, really, I am sick. No, no, believe me, I, I feel this pain all the time. And maybe it's a little bit better now. But so I, for me, it was the overuse. I just couldn't identify what it was. A broken bone, like my collarbone, ugh put a plate, put the screws in there. Let's go. Here we go. Like it's a cycling injury. It's the yeah. ultimate cycling injury breaking the collarbone, yeah. but that's not a joint. So the collarbone break for me was, was simple compared to the elbow being an actual joint that you want to keep on moving. So, but the overuse for sure was the more difficult because you just don't know the game plan. You don't have a game plan. Yeah. It's hard to figure out what it is. You don't know if it's always going to work. Do we try something different? It's not quite working. Yeah. There are two points that you make there that I think are, are awesome. One, is this idea of being a surgeon and really instilling confidence in your patient or your athlete, whether or not we feel that behind the scenes, that's something that James Andrews is so amazingly good at. You know, the, the Drew Brees is a very common story that people have heard about. If yes. you were to show nine out of 10 orthopedic surgeons, they all would have told him, yeah, you're never going to have a career again in the NFL. And James Andrews said, we'll fix you. We'll get you right. Just like you said. And sure enough, it was one of those where Drew Brees uh, is a type of athlete. And he, listen, yes. he had a lot to overcome, no doubt. Yes. But he was the yes. type of athlete matched with the type of surgeon who said, who's not hedging his bets, who said, listen, you have a bad injury. We're going to do everything we can to get you there. And you know, we're going to give you everything we got and we'll see what happens, you know, as opposed to, yeah, you're not going to make it. That is a huge point. I think that I, as a surgeon, that's why I'd love doing this podcast is I learned that from you is that, yeah, you may not be hundred percent confident, but if you just show us that, like in our minds, we're like, yeah, we got this too. And it's not 100%. a lie, but it's one of those nope. where, whether it's simple or complex, it's a matter of saying, listen, we're going to do everything we can to give yep. you back the ability to recover. And then it's on you and you as an athlete. I mean, you guys are so motivated as it is. Once you get the green light, you're ready to go, which, 100%. Is, which is awesome. Oh, that gave me chills. It gave me chills hearing about Dr. Andrews just kind of talk about saying, yeah, I can, I can fix that. Because yeah. I could hear him saying that to Drew Brees. I could, I could picture us being in the actual room with them together and saying, I can do that. You're exactly right. That's all athletes want. We want that same confidence that we have in ourselves when we're fit and race ready and ready to go. We want that same confidence that you would have in doing your surgeries. And it's awesome. It makes a big, big difference for someone going in there because they're already nervous as it is. They've already seen maybe other people and other specialists tell them one thing or tell them another or whatever. They're confused. They don't know what you guys know. They don't know that they're walking in them blind. So you have to act in a way to give them and boost them up to make them feel good. Like, hey, we're going to get through this. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to put you back. We're going get, to get you right. And then it's going to be up to you. And like you said, as an athlete, once you give me the green light, here we go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the Redskins, Alex Smith. I mean, what a miracle Incredible. that was that yeah. he went through. 
but his whole goal, he talked about it, how he just wanted to get clearance again, to actually be able to play. And when he got that, he couldn't believe it. He was like, wow, this is where I wanted to get to. But yeah. it just shows you his motivation level to get back to, to be just, on the field. Yeah. It's incredible. The drive is, incredible. Is, is incredible. The other the point you mentioned was this idea that having a more difficult time with an overuse injury. And, and that, that's the experience you describe where you come in, you're like, well, yeah, I really am hurt, but I can't pinpoint it. That's for, for us as physicians, one of the hardest things to treat because we, we know the same thing you do. This is not a a limiting injury like a fracture where like you can't put weight on it but we also know that you guys are dealing with this it's just hard for us to pinpoint a lot of these because they're not it's not like a fracture fracture is very clear whereas like you said you get an mri you get a cat scan you get an x-ray and nothing shows up and you're sitting there going, right. I, I really this does really does hurt and i'm going listen it's probably okay and i'm going i don't know what else to provide so it's a really tough situation because like you said then it becomes 18 months of really trying to just figure out what the best solution is oftentimes it's not very clear at the beginning so right. i can imagine right. The difference if you had one to choose of taking injury that you know what the issue is it's a break you know you're out you know you need surgery but you'd rather take that any day over 18 months of uncertainty 100 percent, 100 percent. yep oh, wow. that's fascinating there's a lot to talk about i think that the four olympics obviously 2005 was one of your biggest years you were itu a gold medal in itu world cup you finished the season as the first american ranked number one in the world you were the sportsman of the year i mean that's a big year you were just feeling it that year what was it about 2005 that you really st- stood out 2005 and 2006, I, I got home from Athens and in and, and 2004, I was disappointed. I finished ninth. I was fifth in the world going in. I, I was expecting to win a medal. I didn't. The course didn't naturally suit me. It was a super hilly climbing course on the biking. I didn't do very well. I was crushed. And I wanted to change things up about my training when I came home. And I wasn't doing everything I could. I was that young athlete that ate whatever I wanted to when I wanted to. I wasn't super dialed into my nutrition. I didn't use all the tools at the training center as far as sports psychology. I wasn't totally dialed in with that. So I revamped my entire nutrition to whereas I focused on the timing of when I ate as opposed to like just eating junk food. Really, I was a triathlete, so I'm burning calories. I felt like all calories are all calories. Like, it doesn't really matter what I put in. I could eat a Wendy's burger or fries or whatever. It's still calories, right? Well, there's no, like, I mean, no, there's, there's actually good fuel and there's bad fuel you have the high octane or you have the like low unleaded there's a reason why there's a difference in what you put in your racing car and if i'm a ferrari and this is my engine i need to treat it as such and so i totally changed my nutrition plan i got that dialed in as far as nutrition timing and like never go hungry never go thirsty was like a kind of like a motto that i live by so eating small meals throughout the day because when you do that it stokes the fire like that fire within to whereas your metabolism is constantly burning. So my, my tip to everyone listening is breakfast is so key, right? Because you haven't eaten since dinner. And say you ate dinner at 7.30 p.m. You had some dinner, right? You had, had a pretty big dinner. You sleep the entire night. If you don't break the fast breakfast, if you don't break it and they don't eat until lunch, your body, when it eats lunch, what's it going to do? It's all of a sudden going to take that food and store it away as fat. It's just going to put it away because it's going to say the body is thinking to itself, I don't know when you're going to feed me again. So I better just like try to hibernate this food and just because I don't know where this is going to go. So whereas if you're constantly eating, if you're having a banana or a bar or oatmeal or something in the morning to kind of break that fast, now the metabolism is, is churning. The fire's been stoked. More wood's been added. Here we go. And so you're burning fuel and it it can use it. And so for me, it's smaller meals throughout the day, not having a huge meal before you go to bed, uh, all those things. And then hydration is so key. People don't realize it. I think it's the next real big thing for us as far as like hydration and just being more hydrated. And you know what, when you go to the bathroom, like you should get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. If you don't, then you're probably not hydrated in the lead up throughout that evening. 
And if your urine is always dark yellow, it's not good. And so yeah. hydration has brain function, how you perform. It's a big, big deal for athletes, but everyone, everyday, everyday people. So yeah. you should always have a water bottle wherever you are, just going around, just constantly drinking. And you always got to drink more than you think, you know? So yeah. So I just, I changed that. I changed yeah. my nutrition. I changed the way I looked on sport performance and using my sports psychologist and all those things. Yeah. I got more serious about it. It's like maybe Dr. Andrews, maybe you guys there in, in Birmingham, right? You're like, Hey, listen, we're great, but we want to maybe be the best in the world, the best center in the entire world. I want to be the best in you know the city, then the state, then the country. And But at some point, there's always someone maybe better that you're trying to aspire to or trying to compete against. For me, I was always happy being the, the best in the U.S. I was happy of being that big fish in a small pond of the U.S., but that only got me so far. Yeah. And at some point, I was like, I'm good enough. I'm good enough to be the best in the world. I didn't realize it six years ago, but I know now I'm good enough. Let's do it. And that's what, how I got to be number one in the world for you know those two years, 05, 06, got on a Wheaties box. You know, So it's... It was one of those things. That's awesome. That's a pretty big change. You really massively overhaul your whole nutrition plan. Did you also yep. change how you trained as well in, at the same time? 100%. I focus more on sleep, getting the right amount of sleep, going to bed earlier. So eight hours of sleep at night, it's not always the same, right? If you can do it a little earlier, get up earlier, being more productive, sleep was huge. But just overall aspect, how I traveled, when I got to races, where I would stay, I would pay more money to stay in maybe a little bit of a nicer hotel, even though maybe I couldn't afford it early on in my career. But then I realized, whoa, if I got a free place to stay with my friend, all of a sudden they're having a party, I can't sleep well at night. Like you got to control what you can control. And so I learned very quickly about traveling, what I need for traveling, who I want support system with me when I go, all these different things. If I could tell my 15 year old self what I know now back then, you know, it's one of those things, right? Yeah. I, you just don't go from being really good to, to being the best in the world. There's obviously progressions along the way. And so 05 after Athens, it took a spotlight of me finishing ninth. People would say, oh, ninth, like you're the ninth and best athlete in the world. It's really good. And for me, it was, it was crushing. So it took that lesson of I can be better. I'm not doing myself justice and I'm not, I'm not getting the best out of myself. And so you want to be able to sleep at night. And so for me, I, I just changed things around. And for the next 12 years of my career, I really owned my career and trying to maximize my potential. And then with that, it seems like there's a, a good amount of resources at the training center in, in Colorado Springs. What were the you know, things that really stood out to you that was unique about our Olympic training center there that allowed you to up your game from that point on? It's one stop shop. Kind of like maybe like you guys, right? Like you do the surgery, but I'm sure you don't ship people off to go do rehab somewhere else. So they need to do rehab. They do it right there where you guys are. So it's one stop shop, meaning I can go and train in a pool that's an Olympic sized pool with my coach at the training center at 6,000 feet. So there's an increase in red blood cells, more oxygen to the muscles means you can perform longer. So I'm at altitude, which is a natural benefit, like natural doping in a way, increasing red blood cells, hematocrit. I have a 50 meter pool right there on campus. And then I have a weight room that's literally like hundred meters from the pool. So it's all within, and then the dining hall is 50 meters the other direction. Where I sleep is just another 50 meters beyond that. So think of like a small college university with everything you possibly need with all your advisors all on one location, but your sports scientist, your sports psychologist, your nutritionist, your, your dining hall staff. I don't have to make meals. I don't have to go home to my apartment. I just go back to my dorm and I stop by and get the best fruits and vegetables and protein and clean food living that, that I want. The key secret would be the fact that it's just all so close and that it's just provided for you. And those only certain athletes that got access to that. And there was only five triathletes at the time, five men, five women that you had to be the best in the country in order to get invited to come there. And for me, it was great early on in my career. As I got older, I realized, you know, I had a wife and kids or whatever. I'm not going to still live at the training center, but I'm still here in Colorado Springs, like talking to you today. I'm yeah. still here. So, I mean, 
just the access to what I get. But it's the same reason why swimmers don't leave their university system, right? So if you look at a lot of these swimmers where they train post-college, they'll train at the same pool in the same environment because they're so used and so familiar with that. And the universities are a great mechanism for having that one-stop shop, right? At Alabama football, those guys, they got the dining room table to the studies, to getting help with their schoolwork, all of it, it's all right there. It's hard to really mess up. That's the same thing with the training center. It's great. And there's three of them. There's one here in Colorado Springs. There's one in Chula Vista, south of San Diego, although that one's a little bit less. And then there's Lake Placid, the winter one in New York City. So That's awesome. We spent some time uh, a couple of years ago to tour it, and it was just super impressive. Some of the cool tools they have too were like the altitude chamber. Um, yes. How much did you get in that? Did you use that a good amount or? It was towards the end of my career. Yeah, yeah. it was Yeah, high altitude training center. Basically, it's a room that they could actually bring you down to sea level. So we're already at altitude. We're already at 6,200 feet in Colorado Springs, which I said is helpful for increasing red blood cell count. But what the negative is, is that you can't go onto the track here at a local at Colorado College or UCCS here in town. And I can't run my repeats as fast because I have less oxygen to breathe into. So it's very difficult. Whereas if I was to come where you are, if I could go train there on the track there in Birmingham, right, and do that, I could run a lot faster. I could breathe in just full oxygen. Here we go. Yeah. And my lungs are, th- are saying thank you. So in this high altitude training like room, it's like, you know, just a 2,000 square foot room with treadmills and bikes in there and, and comfy trainers and all these kind of gadgets. I can set up the treadmill, whereas I can do repeats as fast as I want because I'm breathing. They can even change it to where they can go below sea level where I'm getting even more oxygen. So the problem is with that is on the recovery side because you recover at 6,000 feet. So I'll go do a workout in that room, but then the next day my muscles are like, whoa, what did we just do here? Like you really went fast today. You know, they're screaming at me. So I, you got to almost have those workouts be a little bit more recovery and days in between. Gotcha. But yeah, I mean, I only used that at the, at the tail end of my career because they didn't really have it as much. I, I used to do this old thing where they have an oxygen tank and I had this whole harness like thing and like I have a tube hooked into like my mouth and I would just yeah. breathe in like pure oxygen from there <laughs> as it's like bobbing around and I'm running like so. I was all about those kind of gadgets and because ideally what you want to do is you want to live high and train low. You want to live and spend most of your day at say maybe six to 8,000 feet. But if I could actually race down and all of a sudden drive myself 40 minutes, like straight down a mountain and be at like 2000 feet, that would be ideal. Then I would do my workouts down there and then I would come back up and live. But you have altitude rooms, you can modify your room or whatever. So there's all kind of cool things that they can do nowadays that can try to increase red blood cells to do stuff to the body that you're trying to increase hematocrit. And when you have more oxygen to the muscles, it's, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. Probably have to dial up the humidity if you're going to replicate Birmingham. I'll tell you that. Yeah. A little, little more humid <laughs> yeah. in Colorado Springs. And, and, you, and you can do that too. You can put it, you, can, right. you can dial the humidity. Yeah. You can do whatever you want, yeah. which is great because when you're going to Tokyo, Tokyo is going to be just like Birmingham. It's going to be super hot, yep. super humid. So those athletes right now are training and prepping for a rate, even though they may be there and, and they might have to move to another location to go to an, an environment like Houston to be there to simulate that. Cause you have to acclimate. If you don't acclimate, yeah. you just can't show up to Tokyo coming from a cold weather environment and thinking it's going to go well. That's not a good recipe. You want to try to simulate the environment that you're going to be in when you go a race and compete. How much time would you give yourself when you're trying to acclimate? I would say four to six weeks to get the body to kind of be right in, in the right frame of mind. It doesn't take up probably much longer than that. I mean, I wouldn't take longer than six weeks. You could probably do it as short a time as maybe three weeks to fully acclimate. But just to get your body to where all of a sudden your body's sweating a lot more, the sweat rate's increasing. Okay, now you got to start drinking more to supplement that. So to get that, but I would say three to six weeks. If, if you have a chance to do longer, that would be great. But 
maybe there's negatives too, right? Because sure. if you're in, in a very human environment, it's hard to train in that type of environment too, you know, recovery wise. Yeah. But looking at this career again, the, the four Olympics, all the number ones, the national championships of all those, if you had to pick one, what is the highlight moment of your career? Would you say? Uh, I would say longevity of the career yeah. is what I'm most proud of. I mean, four Olympic games is what I'm most proud of. So I was four for four, you know, so it's not easy to qualify for Olympic games. I made 2000, the very first one in triathlon. I, I made 04 in Athens. I made 08 in Beijing and then 2012 in London. Then I finally tried for Rio in 2016, um, but had an injury, had a toe injury. I had a bone spur on my big toe. And when you're a runner, you don't realize how much you use the big toe and how much bend that you need in that. And so again, I went back to my trusty, you know, once you got a, got a great place, I'd been in Birmingham. If I would have known you, Dr. Ryan, I'd been <laughs> flying down there, seeing your foot specialist, right? Yeah. And so they get in there and they're like, okay, yep, we see the bone spur. There it is. Ooh. It looks pretty good. We got to go in there and shave that off and clean it out. And when they did a clean out like that with the cartilage and stuff like that, it was, it was a little deeper dye than they initially thought. So my recovery off that was a little longer than I thought. And I didn't make real, but I, I'm most proud of the length of my career that I was able to figure out what it took that no other triathlete men on the men's side, I've gone to two Olympic games. Like I've gone to multiple. I was always with new guys. It was always me. And I was the one constant. I was the same peanut butter and jelly. And here comes someone else. What's the new thing in town? So I, I'm just, I'm proud of the fact that I developed and created a support system in place with my wife, who was amazing for me and, and, and just almost my sports psychologist at home, you know, just her belief in me, because as athletes, we get down just so you know, our self-confidence isn't always at a hundred. I can tell you that much. I mean, it, it definitely drops and you need people around you to say, you know what? That race wasn't you. That season wasn't you. You had the SI joint stuff going on. You're going to qualify here, you know? So I would say longevity of the career. My best Olympics was Beijing in, in 2008, where I finished seventh. I was probably most proud of that. But I've won world championship titles. I've, I've won Pan American Games gold medals. But I think for me, it's also passion. Of, I found what I love to do. And I, I think that's, a, that's what you could ask for for anyone in life. All I want for my kids and for anyone is to actually find what they love. And you, you hate to see someone go through life not knowing what it is that they're really, really good at. Like you, I mean, it seems like you've really found something that you love talking about, that you love being around like these other surgeons and learning from. That's cool, right? But maybe you want to be a pilot. But if you don't find that love until later on in life and all those years that you missed out on, I found it when I was 10 years old. I mean, it was such a blessing that I was able to find something that I love to do when I, as a young kid to be like, this is what I want to do. And now it's that idea of like, I've got to recreate that. I've got to refine what it is that love that I have. And, and I'll get there. Maybe it won't get all the way there, but I'll get there. But yeah. I would say longevity. There's not one particular race, but just the overall career. I'm proud of the fact that I was a four-time Olympian in a sport that's probably not too easy to be a four-time Olympian in. You should be proud of them. I and mean, it totally sets you apart. I mean, that's incredible. I knew that you had made four consecutive and that was the most. I didn't realize no other person had gone to more than two. That's impressive. Yeah. In um, the U.S. Yep. In the yep. U.S. Yep. Yeah. US. Yep. Yep. That obviously speaks to why, you know, in, I read your Hall of Fame speech, why that was so difficult for you. Clearly, this was such a passion for you. You knew that from a young age. It was really everything that you'd known. How was that for you when you finally made that decision? What were the things that led you to that decision? And you mentioned it was hard. What were the things that you thought about going into that? And then what was your thought on the other side of that transition? Ultimately, the decision was made for me. Like I said, I retired at, at, at 41. I was old. And, you know, again, my big toe wasn't working the way it should. I was getting these bone spurs that you get when it's just overuse injuries. And so uh, the decision was made for me. I would have kept on going. <laughs> I think the national, the, the high performance team at USA Travel would have been like, seriously, can we not get some other young kids in here to replace Hunter? Hunter needs to move along. 
I'm probably not doing them any favors that I'm still sticking around. But I think the decision was made for me. And for me, the transition, like I said, has been hard, but I've been trying to focus on knowing myself and what it is that I like. And I love the sport of triathlon. I love the Olympic Games. I love youth and development. I love mentorship. I love talking to people. I love this conversation right here where we get to talk about what you're good at and you interviewing me. I love people. So I think for me, my next career will be more on that youth and junior side, those next kids coming up. I want to instill that belief in them that maybe they don't see it in themselves early on. You know, I'll tell my kids all the time, you can be anything you want to be. There's no limiter and there's no governor on where you can go in life. I hope all parents are so supportive and telling their kids that they can be great at anything because ultimately kids... How much self-doubt do we have all the time? Just the lack of self-confidence that we have in ourselves, that mental self-talk that we have, it's constantly, and it can be negative all the time, which is hard. And so I always try to tell my kids, listen, you can do whatever you want. So let's just try to find what that passion is. Maybe it's a music, maybe it's an art, maybe it's and being a, you know, the best lawyer you possibly can be, whatever it is, go and make a difference in this world and go find out what you're good at. And so for me, I'm learning that, but I think it's more on the youth side. I love that kids of, of that 10 to 20 years old where they're just still trying to search and find themselves and they don't have a whole lot of belief. I'd love to come like walk alongside and give them a hug and on talented kids and say, you know what? This is what I see in you. And this is coming from me who's seen it all in the sport that we're talking about of triathlon or whatever it is, right? So I hope you have confidence and I'll still be there tomorrow to let you know that it's not going away and that ability is still there and this is what you can be. And, and so I think instilling that belief in that mentorship, I love to be a mentor to a lot of athletes across the country. That's awesome. And do you see that as a coaching endeavor or do you think it's separate in terms of that? that I think it's more, more of a men. I think it's almost, almost, I think it's almost separate. I think the coaching kind of, kind of side is fun. I don't know if I really love the pureness of writing a program up and the day-to-day of the coaching kind of thing. There's a lot of time and commitment involved in that. And I respect coaches because what they do is amazing. And the time commitment they give is unbelievable. But I think it's more of almost like it's like a teaching, almost like doing a year round academy kind of thing yeah. to whereas I can be a teacher and a mentor tour and do these zoom calls with young kids and have questions pop up and me help answer them and me guide them and have you come on and talk about what is overuse what does that mean right why is it good to kind of balance things out and and to play multiple sports why is the sport of triathlon inherently good in that have guest speakers come in and so almost like a national academy uh where i can just teach and then maybe there's a higher level Whereas I would love to take 30 or 40 athletes where I could actually become more on a personal level and mentor them in a way to say, listen, I can help guide you. This is why you should go maybe more running or maybe triathlon isn't the best for you. I see more of a swimming mentality and and whatever it is. Right. But yeah, I think the coaching side could be there, but that's tough. I mean, there's a lot of time commitment in that and I love it, but it would definitely still be on the youth side. Yeah, I don't really have awesome. a passion for coaching my dad to be take two minutes off his half Ironman time. That's not really where I'm at. Yeah. Although that's probably more where the funding and resources are. But uh, but anyways, I enjoy it. I think money shouldn't be an option. I got in the sport of triathlon because yeah. I loved it and I followed it. And, and, and it just happened to be whereas I was lucky enough to be in a sport that actually had big prize purses and big paydays that I was able to win and have good sponsors like Polo Ralph Lauren and Nikes and Toyotas and all these great sponsors. But I didn't do it because of that. I, I did it because I just, I loved it. And I, I just wanted to see what I could get the most out of myself. And you'll find that in your career. And I'm sure you're already learning that. Just the idea of learning and growing and trying to be the best and taking things from other, like Dr. Andrews and your other mentors that you have within your departments and just learning from them. That's what they're there for. Yeah. Learn and grow and just copy and take that. I mean, that's the best. Everyone's learned from someone. Someone's been taught by somebody else. Not a bad place to be to be taught by the best. 
So that would be me, you know. I'd love to be the Dr. Andrews of youth triathlon, you know, mm-hmm. of kids coming up to whereas they're like, hey, you got something you got to find about triathlon? You better go talk to Hunter. Yeah. He'll have an answer for you. That's you awesome. Know, well, I think, with confidence. I, I think uh, you'd be fantastic. And I'm inspired today and I'm, I'm not even that good at triathlon. I, I, I dabbled in a little bit. So, oh, that's oh awesome. you're good. Hey, we've gone for a bike ride together. We I have. Know, I know your skills. That yes. Was, that was I one, wanted, of my, I, one of my favorite ones. I think you were like, you know, kind of uh, your heart rate was probably in the nineties and I was probably like maxed out. So, <laughs> um, oh, you can ride your bike. You can ride yeah. your bike. Hey, next time I'm in Alabama, we'll go for a ride. I, or are I, you out here? I would love, love to. I'll have to hit you up for that for sure. Uh, last couple of questions. We'll make these kind of quick fire. So cyclists and triathletes uh, kind of get a, a bad rap for shaving their legs. What's yeah. the deal behind that? It's a great question. I love it. That's a great first rapid fire question. There's two reasons why people shave their legs. Guys shave their legs. One, if for the, the odd chance that you do crash and go down, there's a lot of debris and road rash kind of things on the hips and on the legs or whatever. And, and you know that more than anybody, like getting into that and getting access to that can be painful if you have to go through all the hair on the guy's legs to get that. So you want a nice, clean surface to be able to get to it. You shave your legs because on the wound side, to, to make it easy to clean up, crashes and debris and, and road rash. The other one is massages at a high level for me when I'm competing, I'm a professional athlete. We get massages, leg massages all the time. And a massage with shaved legs is an entirely different experience <laughs> than a massage with a lot of hair on your legs. So those are the two main reasons there. Maybe there's some performance and hand like with the wind resistance. That's minuscule. I think that's, that's finite, but the majority for me, it was massage therapy that I got all the time at train center. And, uh, when I do go down and do crash, it was easy to get and clean out a wound. Yeah. You still continue that trend? Uh, I do it when I want to feel good about myself. <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame you. It's, yeah. It's hard to maintain, you know, to do that. It'd be a little weird all of a sudden to be like, Hey babe, what are you doing? Just still shave my legs all the time. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'll do it when I feel like it's gotten out of control. Wow. Yeah. My legs still look yeah. You know, I still got it. Still look like a trap. Yeah. Still look like a trap. I can awesome. still fake it. Yeah. I can still fake it. What was your favorite pre-race meal? And then also your favorite post-race binge meal where you didn't care what you're eating. My early on favorite pre-race meal was pizza because that's when I was not really into the nutrition side. I won my very first professional race, my very first elite race on the professional level in 1998. I had a pizza beforehand and I was like, that's it. It's got to be the pizza. I love pizza anyways, you know, mushroom and sausage, green peppers, whatever it is. But it became more of a combination of everything, like some fish, some carbs, some maybe some noodles with it, some vegetables. It's just a real balanced meal for me. I love to just go out and just kind of get all of that, you know. And so if you want to carbo load, you do it all throughout. But you want to be balanced in whatever you do. My, my favorite post-race binge would be just some kind of like juicy burger, not from some, you know, random fast food place, but like some like nice burger where you go out to eat and sit down and get like a nice burger that you probably shouldn't be eating. But I feel like it's a, it's a glutton meal for a lot of endurance athletes. It's like a good juicy burger yeah. post-race. So yeah. We had Leanna cave on a couple of episodes ago and her favorite was McDonald's. She's wow. Like, yeah. She's like, it was, it was the the salty fries and the burger. I was like, oh, okay. It is. Yeah. You don't get that. It's that uh-uh. craving that you're like, I don't ever get this. This is the one time I can eat it, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Hunter, I know you have a time limit coming up here. I just want to say thank you very much. And is, is there anything else that you would leave for our listeners as far as a piece of advice or something that kind of is part of your philosophy or, or what you would recommend for our listeners here today? Yeah, I think my philosophy would be love what you do and do what you love. I mean, for kids and parents and all those things and let the kids be the guy. 
And like I said earlier, let kids dictate where their passion is in sports. And so I think you found it. I found it in life. Life's too short to be lived in a way where you're not going out and chasing things that you really want to be good at and do. And so I would say for kids and youth to be well-balanced and, and to do multiple things throughout their career. But uh, I just love it. I love this conversation. I love the fact that you asked me to come on and be a part of this, Dr. Ryan. It's been a real fun experience for me and just learning from you. And I felt like there was a new sense of passion talking about the surgery and what I did and kind of get affirmation from you about, you know, the specialty side to it, because it's such an art, what you guys do and putting athletes back together again. It really is something that athletes, we're so good and we're so specialized in what we do and to be able to find someone else that when we can't do what we love to have someone tell Drew Brees, I can, I can fix that. I can take care of you. And then you go do the rest. Man, what a conversation that must have been in that room for him to actually experience that level of confidence. So keep on doing that for your patients. Keep on delivering that level of confidence to them because that's what they want to hear. And me with my kids and, and in life, just be confident about what you're doing and enjoy what you're doing and things will go well. Yeah, well, it's a position of honor and thank you for that. And again, it's really been a pleasure having you on and talking to you again and listeners are going to love this. So uh, again, ladies and gentlemen, this is Hunter Kemper professional triathlete and uh, historic American triathlete. And, you know, no one else has really matched what he's done. So really honored to have him on. And thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks, Dr. Ryan. Have a great day, Hunter. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Thank you. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury Podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time, be well and take care. Goodbye. Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.